This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Trump and refugees. And the disaster of ending temporary protected status, TPS. Also, politics after the government shutdown, Harold Meyerson will comment. But first up, Trump and China. Things are not looking good. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, yesterday, China reopened talks in Washington with Donald Trump's people working on that trade agreement. But the really big news about Trump and China is Trump's Justice Department bringing criminal charges against China's giant telecom company, Huawei. For comment and analysis, we turn to Jeff Wasserstrom. He's written for The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Nation, and others. And his most recent book is China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know. He's also my colleague at UC Irvine, where he's Chancellor's Professor of History. Jeff, welcome back. Great to be back on. Well, how am I doing on pronouncing Huawei? Pretty good. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> Huawei. Huawei. Huawei is the world's largest provider of equipment that powers mobile phones and data networks, I read in the New York Times. Uh the charges filed against them on Monday by Trump's Justice Department include stealing American industrial secrets, misleading the American government about its business in Iran, and obstruction of a criminal investigation. And the chief financial officer of that company is the woman who's been arrested in China because Trump wants her extradited. In to Canada. The, in Canada. In Canada. Uh because Trump wants her extradited to the United States to be put on trial here. How big a deal is this? So this is a big deal. It's a big deal um, globally. Um, Huawei, along with being this giant provider, is poised to take the lead in 5G technology, which could, in one view of it, be a symbol of China's surging forward and as a leader in tech fields. And from another one could be positioning itself to have um, even more extensive surveillance possibilities around the world. But it's a really big deal in ch what's a really big deal in China is the um, arrest of Ms. Meng, the CFO, who is also the daughter of the founder of, of Huawei. And Huawei, it's a, it's a company, and we think of private companies being related to the government, but not as tightly related to the government as um, China's leading companies are. So the heads of companies in China are linked to the Chinese Communist Party. If they move too far away from the Communist Party, they get reined in, as um, can happen. And in, so in this case, the, the arrest of Ms. Meng can be seen in China as though something like the seizing of somebody who's tightly connected to the highest reaches of the government or of power. So, you know, there's no perfect analogy of it, but it's it's the kind of enormous news story within China that if, say, a member of the British royal family who was hmm. in some other part of the world was arrested, even if it was a, you know, not so not right at the top. It's it's so it's it's daily news, her fate, 
and it's seen as um, it's understood in China as a return by a, the government is spinning it this way, and a lot of China, people in China see it, though not everyone, as a return to a time when foreign powers would bully China. Mm. And Xi Jinping, the Chinese Communist Party in general, has been saying their rise means that kind of thing can't happen anymore, and China is now a country that's globally respected. So that's part of why it's such a big story there. And it's led to actions within China, the seizing of particularly um, two Canadians that is seen on questionable kinds of, of grounds that's seen widely outside of China as a kind of hostage taking. Hmm. So the, the Department of Justice indictments were on Monday, the day before the Chinese trade delegation arrived in Washington. It seems like this is, you know, the proverbial shot across the bow of their uh, ship of state here. Uh, and yet they showed up and they've been meeting yesterday and today. So, yeah, it's, it's, there's, there are enormous stakes on both sides to try to at least give the impression of things moving forward on this, um, on the tariffs and these issues, because, the economy in China has, has been in a troubled state. The global economy is in a troubled state. Um, there's, it's important for both sides to look very tough, to not look like they're backing down. But it also is important to be able to say, but we are working on this to mm -hmm. get a good deal uh, for us. Uh, and the Department of Justice says it isn't just Miss Mung that they're indicting for these these uh, criminal offenses. It's the whole company. Uh, that seems that seems uh, like a very bold move of the Trump administration. Yeah, it's ramping it up quite dramatically. And um, so the question still is: This is still playing out in China, how how the Chinese government will react in the initial thing when it was. Um, Ms. Meng was the focus, and she was in Canada. The uh, retribution was aimed at Canada, yes. even though <laughs> the arrest was at the behest of the United States. So there's an effort to, there's a sense of trying to pick on a uh, less powerful country. No offense to any Canadians <laughs> listening. Um, so there's been a, there haven't been direct um, quid pro quo kind of moves against the United States. It's this strange situation where China, the Chinese government and the, and the American government are both at odds and in tension, but don't want it to be too direct in terms of confrontation because they depend so much on each other. Yeah. And the leaders themselves are walking this very strange dance. Um, Trump continues to do something that I think is really the, the last thing you want to do with a strongman bully leader like Xi Jinping which is talk very tough about the, the country that he runs, but then praise him as an individual. Trump has throughout this said, his, talks about his friend Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping's a good guy. We've, we've seen this with others. He talks about that way with the North Korean leader. Um, but this is so terrible because within that country, a strongman leader, and Xi Jinping is more of a strongman leader than we've seen in China in a very long time, uses that to say, see how respected I am in the world, and uses the tough talk about the country to say, see how uh, the United States doesn't really respect China as a country, even though we've risen, but see how Trump 
admires me. It's it's the worst combination. It happens mm-hmm. with other strongman leaders mm-hmm. too. Well, the uh, yesterday the chiefs of American intelligence agencies appeared before the Senate uh, Intel Committee. Most of the news has been about the way they disagreed with Trump's assessments, but the China thing did come up and. Sen- one senator, Angus King of Maine, this this independent who caucuses with the Democrats, said the Chinese uh, tech company uh, that we've been talking about here needed to choose between being what he called, quote, a worldwide telecommunications company or an agent of the Chinese government, close quote. Is it even possible for China's biggest tech company not to be an agent of the Chinese government? Does it does it have any choice over whether to cooperate with the government in whatever surveillance the government wants? It really doesn't. It really doesn't have a choice. And we've, we've seen that. I mean, though it hasn't been completely obvious, but the, the head of Alibaba, which is the biggest um, company there there is in some metrics, the head of that Jack Ma was was being having a certain degree of individual popularity and was reined in by the Chinese Communist Party. Had to pr- profess his you know his fealty to it and talk about stepping back from some kind of public role. So there really isn't a a space for a completely independent. And and Huawei is trying to present itself more that way, but it it can't. I think it is really important and important for listeners um, to this show to say that you you can't really disentangle the Chinese government from some of these very powerful companies. It is important that we disentangle individual Chinese um, coming from China to the United States from the government. Even though pressure can be put on them, it isn't as though, and these are things that have been worrisome because they can play into um, Sinophobia and xenophobia. We shouldn't be thinking of there are, uh, there are thousands thousands of students from China in the United States studying, and it would be very easy for them to get caught in the crossfire of this and to each of them be seen as, as though they were doing the bidding of the government, whereas pressure can be put on them, and sometimes they may, but as individuals, we have to think of them as having agency. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Jeff Wasserstrom of UC Irvine, my colleague. We're talking about Trump and China. So mostly we've talked about the China side of this. Uh, During these negotiations, uh, the Trump administration is represented by this – the guy who's in charge, the trade representative, is named Robert Lighthizer. And his team includes Stephen Mnuchin, Wilbur Ross, Larry Kudlow – and Peter Navarro. What can you tell us about this this uh, team? So these are people who um, are mostly associated with uh, taking very hard lines on China, the idea being that there needs to be a much less readiness to compromise, much more suspiciousness about what engagement could bring. And I, I think lot they there are people who used to be quite outliers on the far stretches of, of, of views on China, and they still are to some extent. They're outliers in thinking that tariffs are the right way to get changes in Chinese, behavior, Chinese government behavior. But I think there has been a real shift in among many people, in, 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 including myself, to be more and more frustrated by the direction in which um, Xi Jinping is taking the country. And in fact, the way China has been moving since about 2008 toward more and more tightening control and 
still engaged with the world, but less of a readiness to um, adapt to um, to international norms. So they're less outliers than they were before. But on tariffs as the mechanism, they are they are ones who seem to have a stronger belief that 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 can accomplish things. When the issues are much more than trade imbalances, the issues are more things to do with intellectual property and and global norms, and those should be the focus more than more than the tariffs. I want to take a minute to talk about Peter Navarro, our former colleague at UC uh, Irvine, and now one of Trump's top advisors on China. Tell us about former UCI professor of management, Peter Navarro. Well, I think um, his positions on China have never been um, subtle. Um, the titles of his books, um, The Death by China was one of the recent ones. <laughs> so I think, I think that, that tells you um, quite a lot. The Atlantic uh, called him a business school professor, a get-rich guru, <clears throat> a former Peace Corps member, a former Democrat, and a failed candidate for public office several times over. He used to run as a Republican in San Diego for lots of different things. He's not in the cabinet. He doesn't really have a very high-level position. Um, they said his influence on Trump stems from a combination of bold ideology and lock-jawed dogmatism. He spent the last two decades arguing that China has ripped off the United States and that aggressive trade policies will bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States. And this is the guy who's negotiating with the Chinese uh, trade delegation this week. So, yeah, I think, I think there can be a lot of people who can, can agree about the concern with China. The, and I'm very concerned about China, but it's what you focus on. Um, for me, what we haven't brought up and I mean, I, I, I definitely hope we will, is the enormous human rights issue, um, which is the detention in indoctrination camps, internment of hundreds of thousands, estimates are around a million uh, members of the Uyghur um, ethnicity, um, most of whom are Muslim, as well as some other um, Muslim members of other ethnic groups in the far uh, northwest of China in um, a territory, Xinjiang. This is a this is an appalling situation, and it's it's both getting some attention, but somehow not really taking off in the kind of um, awareness level that I think this this uh, magnitude of human rights abuse really should. And certainly, the Trump negotiators are not going to bring up the Uyghurs as something we are concerned about. So this is not going to get in the get in the middle of uh, of this kind of negotiation. Um, it does make for strange political bedfellows because while the Trump administration isn't bringing it up, Marco Rubio is one person who is bringing it up. Um, but for a very specific thing, he has focused so much on Cuba and it sort of has an, um, an antagonism toward Communist Party-run states that he can bring that up vis-a-vis -vis, uh, vis -vis China as this case. But it's, it's a very strange uh, combination of things. But I think this is the kind of issue where you get beyond specific political scores and you just think about this being the kind of horrific human rights abuse that we see with the issue of the Rohingya. And we should just think of it not as a kind of side issue to what's going on in China, but linked to an overall decline in the human rights situation 
across the People's Republic of China, with this being a per- the most egregious area for it. So the Uyghurs, a uh, Muslim ethnic group living in the west of China, how many of them have been detained, do you think? So it's close to a million. It's, oh. it's, um, oh, that's the best estimate. There's very tight control on information about it. So some of the estimates are based on things like satellite um, projections that show you these massive camps that were not there just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a kind of fast developing thing in the last couple. It's not something that there's always been repression there, but yeah. this is a different kind of thing. This and what do we point. know about these camps? So um, initially... The Chinese government's view was to deny that they existed. Now they've changed this and said, yes, they exist, but they're not as big as the Western um, Westerners are claiming and, um, and, and Uyghurs are claiming, uh, and that they're actually vocational. Uh, the idea is to give people uh, better job prospects. And one of the things about this is some of the people who are needing to be re-educated or educated are including leading poets and professors. Um, well, you can say that professors might need other kinds of education. <laughs> but with the glut of PhDs in history, a retraining camps but for that, our grad students. <laughs> but that's not what they're talking about. Okay. What they're really talking about is indoctrination. I think that's and the, yeah. and they're being encouraged to shed their beliefs and all forms of religiosity. Mm-hmm. It, the ironies of this, it's crazy how, what can lead you to end up in a, in a camp in, uh, as this has been pieced together by some very, very daring journalists who've taken considerable risks to get the information by human rights groups and by um, people who've escaped from the, the area and have reported and patching all these things together and scholars as well. So things that, that can land you in one of the camps are signs of increasing religiosity, which is seen as a sign that you're being radicalized. Hmm. So one of the things that can get you into a camp is if you give up smoking oh my or gosh. give up drinking. Oh. And so you can simultaneously have, you know, public service health campaign saying it would be great if people didn't smoke as much. But if you're a Uyghur and you stop smoking, it can be the kind of thing that's noted about your behavior and say, well, why would somebody be doing that? Maybe it's because they're becoming more devout. And this false, this false uh, sense of parallel between devoutness and extremism is what then is trying to be done with what are mechanisms like what we associate with the term brainwashing to try to break people of that thing. And the Chinese Communist Party says, look, this region could have been like Chechnya for us, and it's been relatively quiet. That must be because these things are somehow working. So, Jeff Wasserstrom, I wanted to ask you a little more about that. The Chinese position is that the Uyghurs have posed a terrorist threat. is there any truth to this? What kind of threat? When was it? Is it still existing? So there have been violent there have been violent actions. So it's important to realize that those have happened. They've tended to be, and this a lot of this can go back to about 2001. With the launching of the war on terror, there was a desire by the Bush administration to have China not the Chinese government not block um, the war on terror efforts. So there was a willingness as kind of patching together a deal on that to um, treat 
groups that were that were agitating for a greater degree of independence, Xinjiang asked to classify them as a terrorist group. So it's part of this is a kind of perverted extension yeah. of some of the logic of the war on terror. So does the United States consider the Uyghurs to be a, a terror Muslim terrorist fundamentalist base? They don't consider the Uyghurs as a whole, but the one one small group within there was mm -hmm. was brought over there. The the violence that's happened and it's important to to acknowledge that it happened. It's not when we think of uh, some of the images that come to our mind of a technologically sophisticated advanced coordinated kind of attack, which still for Americans comes back to things like Al-Qaeda. What's happened in Xinjiang have been much more like very frustrated people uh, lashing out. There have been attacks with knives. Mm -hmm. There have been attacked with, um, with um, non-automatic weapons. Uh, when there was this kind of stage-managed tour of the uh, internment camps for some foreign diplomats that the Chinese government thought would be willing to be taken in by this because they're dependent on, on China economically. And Reuters was allowed in. Reuters showed some photographs of the weapons that had been confiscated by the, from these dangerous figures. And they look like things in a kind of gun museum display. Oh. Some are single shot, um, you know, Colt 45s. These are the kinds of Jeez. things. So while it's, it's important to realize there's, there, there, are, there are tensions, there has been violence, the, there's been an exaggeration of the degree of the threat. So you say a million Muslims are, are in re-education camps in Western China. Why aren't the Muslim majority uh, countries on China's borders or nearby raising protests about this? So there, there have been very, very small moves toward some kind of pressure recently there have been statements out of Malaysia and some um, isolated things from Indonesia. But for, for the most part, there's been a largely kind of quiescent thing. And it's there are very strong, China is now um, a very important aider of development in different places and has these developing relationships of dependency that lead to, I mean, Americans know this happens because there are reports in the American Cold War where uh, countries with a dependent relationship with the United States could be counted on to not take the lead in criticizing American actions that were seen by some people in the world as human rights abuses. So some of this is a familiar phenomenon. And these are countries that view being part of this grand Chinese uh, um, Beijing's development plan, one of Xi Jinping's signature goals is to create this Belt and Road Initiative that will um, cover big infrastructure projects and increase trade and be an economic um, benefit to China, but also to neighboring countries. And the idea of not wanting to mess that up leads to a pulling the punches on criticism. Yeah, the New York Times just yesterday online published a huge piece on this Belt and Road uh, project, also called the New Silk Road. said China's going to spend a trillion dollars on transforming global infrastructure by building an economic and trade center in Central Asia. The New York Times story was headlined, Can China Turn the Middle of Nowhere into the Center of the World Economy? 
a couple of people challenged that concept of the middle of nowhere and said there are some things going on in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yes, and it's near it's near where these um, detention camps are massive. And, and the, the article does get to them, but it gets to them a while in. And, you know, there's a lot of fascinating stuff in that piece, which will be in the Sunday magazine. Uh, magazine. And so it is a, it, in one sense, it's good to have attention to that kind of region. It's, uh, and, it, and it makes sense that part of why the stakes are so high for the Chinese government, that they're, they're willing to risk this kind of, uh, the potential at least, of it being a, a public relations um, disaster. And there being a lot of criticism, though the criticism has come from some quarters, but not hasn't been as consistent and as loud as one uh, would have hoped. Um, but they, this is a go-between space connecting Beijing and other parts of China to uh, the countries of Central Asia. And some of those countries have authoritarian strongman leaders too. They're, they're very complicated uh, relationships there. We've only got a couple of minutes left here, and I always have to ask you about Marxism in China today. Uh, last year was Marx's 200th birthday. Was that celebrated in China? Yeah, it was a big deal. It was celebrated in China, and also China gave a gift of a giant statue of, of Marx to Germany. So taking, Very taking nice. Marx back, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what was the celebration like? Did they? What do they say about the communist revolution of in, of nineteen forty nine and its relationship to Karl Marx and what's happening in China so today? So there's there's a certain, I mean, it's a it's a Marx without some key elements, you know. <laughs> it's a, a it's a Marxism without class struggle. Xi Jinping, uh, I, I went through his his published speeches and books and. There's a fair amount about Marx, but sometimes Marx and Confucius as if they kind of go together. Marx, Mao, Confucius, all these great thinkers. But class struggle really doesn't show up there. And in fact, there are some young Marxist groups, groups of Marxist students who are taking more seriously things like class struggle and were expressing support for labor movements. And some of them were disappeared from Chinese campuses or arrested or forced to... Um, recant from their things. So, but, but we, again, we shouldn't exoticize this too much. It's, it, it is ironic that in a Marxist state, Marxists are getting um, in trouble. But we always know if we think of in part, ideologies are always intolerant of what are seen as aberrant versions uh, of that. But Marx is in fashion in a certain sense in China. And they're, the government is trying to, to get young people to get their version of Marx. So there's a new animated... Um, an animated show about the young Marx that presents him as kind of a dashing figure. So there's an idea to strip away the parts of the creed you don't want and keep the parts you do want. Jeff Wasserstrom, his book is China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know. Jeff, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch. Next up, politics after the government shutdown. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. 
Later in this hour, the toll Trump's travel ban is taking today. Now it's time to talk about politics after Trump's defeat on the wall and the shutdown. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, there was a feeling of triumph uh, on the left after Trump caved. Nancy Pelosi, of course, gets a lot of credit, but there are other candidates as well. Some say it was Robert Mueller for arresting Roger Stone that morning. Trump caved about five hours after that. Some say, have told me, it was the threat of the flight attendants to strike, which was page one news the morning that Trump surrendered. Who do you think deserves the credit? Well, all the above, and I would add uh, the air traffic controllers who uh, stayed out of their northeast regional headquarters. It didn't take a lot of them. Apparently, 13 were supposed to report for work, and six of them said, uh, the hell with this, we're going on a sick out. Now, this is hugely ironic. This is kind of a bookend, because the real precipitous decline of American labor began in 1981 when Ronald Reagan fired uh, all of the air traffic controllers who would dare to go on strike. At the time, this was the only union that had endorsed him over uh, Jimmy Carter in the 1980 election. He fired all the air traffic controllers who belonged to a union called PATCO, and this uh, essentially uh, encouraged private sector corporate executives to fire their striking workers. It, it, it all but ended major outbreaks of strikes in the United States until just the last year. And this was, in a sense, the air traffic controllers getting their revenge because by not reporting to work, now it's illegal for them to strike. Uh, that, that's why the PACO union was busted in 1981. But by not reporting to work, they managed to shut down LaGuardia Airport. So that alone upset so many business travelers that Republican members of the Senate and the House were getting very uneasy. And uh, I'm sure there were people on, on, on Trump's staff who said, okay, that's, that's a straw that, bro- that broke the camel's back. I'd like to think, though, this was kind of the bookend nearly 40 years later to what happened to air traffic controllers then and air traffic controllers sticking it to another ridiculous president now. Now we have a conference committee working on some kind of compromise on funding for border security. These senators and representatives are used to splitting the difference. They Lots of money gets spent on a lot of stupid things by conference committees. So it seems to me they're probably ready to come up with something for Trump's wall. Or, or am I wrong about the conference committee now? Well, I don't think any of the Democrats are going to endorse a wall. Uh, I think they're going to uh, support, and the, in fact, the Democrats already do support, spending on the border for things like more immigration judges, maybe some steel barriers, who knows. You know, they may come up with uh, with something like that. Uh, I don't think some of the Republicans on the committee <coughs> are as wedded to the wall as, uh, as Trump is. But I, I think there's a decent chance that whatever they come up with, if it has no wall in it, Trump will say no and then just declare a national emergency. I think he may see that as the only way to hold and win back his admittedly shrinking base. 
And you don't think he'll try to shut down the government again if he doesn't get the... I don't. I think the Republicans in the Senate, having looked at the polling and seeing his polling go down and their polling go down and the general revulsion at this, I don't think they'll go along with it. It's quite possible the votes would be there to override a Trump veto. I have a question for you. For two years, the Republicans controlled both houses of Congress. During those two years, the Republicans refused to pay for even one mile of Trump's wall. They did a lot of other things he wanted, but they didn't do that. How come they stood up to him on that one? Well, they probably didn't think it, uh, it made any sense, which, in fact, it, it does not. I mean, uh, the, the, I don't know if the metaphor is invoked that often, but it's very easy to see this, even if you're hysterical about the border, it's very easy to see. This is just uh, the Maginot Line. I mean, building a piece of ugly, outmoded technology that really won't stop it won't stop immigration. And, and more to the point, since you know Trump is concerned about drugs coming in on the border, and we know that 90% of the drugs coming in the border come in through the checkpoints, it's, it's uh, an irrelevant expenditure of, uh, of funds. So... It's not as if left to their own devices, even congressional Republicans are even remotely hot about the wall. One more thing about the border. The New York Times had a fascinating report about the actual work of the Border Patrol. Seems like a very unpopular job. Customs and Border Protection allocated $61 million to a private management consulting firm called Accenture Federal Services to recruit and hire 7,500 new Border Patrol officers over the next five years. This was one of Trump's big things, more Border Patrol agents. The company, which is supposed to hire 7,500, has hired only 33 And during the same period, thousands of Border Patrol agents have quit. Why is it so hard to get people to protect our country from all those Mexican rapists and drug dealers? Well, you know, I mean, if you want to take an optimistic view of human nature, it could be that people don't want to get a job which requires separating very small children from their parents. Yeah. Uh, That's one point. Uh, Point two is that uh, the economy is doing rather well, and it's not that hard to get a better job somewhere else. And point three, as you, uh, I think, imply with your questions, there is no emergency on the border. I mean, you know, when there's a national emergency, say Pearl Harbor, millions of people uh, flock to uh, recruitment stations. When there is no national emergency, and there isn't, uh, you shouldn't expect there's going to be a response. You say the economy is doing well. The Congressional Budget Office says the shutdown cost the economy $11 billion, $3 billion lost permanently. How do they come up with that kind of number, and do you think it's correct? Clearly, there was uh, work that didn't get done that needed to be done, and uh, yeah, I, mean, I think they, uh, they tallied that. There are all kinds of lost opportunities when the government isn't open to do things it should be doing and may have to do it later at greater cost. You know, to the economy as a whole... There's certainly a loss in purchasing power, not only of the uh, 800,000 uh, federal workers and their, uh, who weren't paid and their families, and the 4 million contract workers who didn't get paid and their families. And then you're probably talking about 15, maybe 20 million people who lose purchasing power. So that is a real hit to the American economy. It would be 
if if you took 15 million people, uh, 20 million people f- from any sector out of the economy and uh, curtailed their purchasing power for a month, uh, you would get a decline in, uh, in, in the economy. There's no question of that. One last thing. There's a new Washington Post poll that shows that a third of Republican voters would rather ha- vote for someone else for the Republican nomination in 2020. What do you make of that? Well, I think Trump is beginning uh, to lose Republican support beyond the rather small coterie of never-Trumpers, which was confined to a small wing of, of, of columnists and others within the Republican Party. He's not only uh, you know, the most bizarre character to occupy the White House uh, since Lord knows when, but, but he isn't really delivering on his ridiculous promises. I mean, Mexico's not paying for the wall. He's not building the wall, so even if you support the wall, you're beginning to have uh, you're beginning to have some questions. Uh, Ron Brownstein did a breakdown, uh, had CNN do a further breakdown of uh, uh, Trump's white working class support and those who defected to voting Democratic in 2018, and he found out that uh, Trump has been losing support in the Republican base, with the exception of evangelicals, who are the major component of the Republican Party in the American South but uh, less so around the country. However, if you look at you know, uh, that, that poll, that, that suggests that Trump would still win the Republican nomination. 33, uh, you know, a, third, a third of the Republican Party is not enough to deny him the nomination, but it just would further add to his, I think, already severe uh, re-election problems in 2020. Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. Read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, what Trump's travel ban has done to Muslim families in the United States. That's in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali Kolhatkar. But first, it's been a year since Trump's travel ban went into effect, indefinitely suspending the issuance of visas to applicants from the Muslim-majority countries of Iran, Somalia, Libya, Syria, and Yemen. Our Sasha Abramsky has been reporting on the effect the travel ban has been having on Muslims in the United States. Sasha writes regularly for The Nation, The American Prospect, and The Atlantic. He's the author of several books, including The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Jumping at Shadows, the triumph of fear, and the end of the American dream. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. John, thanks for having me on again. Well, you went to San Diego to talk to Muslim refugees and immigrants. San Diego has 30,000 Somali immigrants, second only to my hometown of Minneapolis in the United States. The people you talked to in San Diego included a guy from Somalia who has become an American citizen. His name is Daha Noor. Am I pronouncing that right? Tell us about... Yes, you, yes, you are. And so this, this was a story I was working on for a publication called Equal Voice News. 
And it was about what happens when you ban entire categories of people, not because they've done something, but because of where they were born. And so you have this situation where people are now being banned from entering the country, both on visitors' visas, but also their immigration process has been stalled. And in Dahanur's case, he was from Somalia. He'd come to the States with his uncle and his father many, many years ago when he was a young child. And he'd lost contact with his mother, who had got lost in the civil wars in Somalia. And then a few years ago, he managed to find her. And this was very emotional for him because he'd always wondered what had happened to his mother had she survived the fighting and so on. And he found her in Mogadishu. And by then he was a U.S. citizen and he began the process of trying to get her into the country so that she could live with him finally. And they went through all of the visa processes. And this stuff takes ages. You have to go through medical tests. You have to prove by DNA tests that you are who you say you are. You have to go through all kinds of background security checks. You went through all of this. And she was all set to be given the visa. And then Trump's travel ban was upheld by the Supreme Court. And so this young man that I met up with in San Diego was in this heartbreaking situation that he had finally found his mother again. He'd done everything he was supposed to do to get her cleared to come into the United States. And this entirely arbitrary and capricious travel ban kicks in. And suddenly the family separated again. And the thing was, I found this all over the country. I was talking to people from different countries, from Iran, from Somalia, from Yemen. And they'd been separated from spouses. They'd been separated from children. Um, I found out about business people who'd gone abroad just at the wrong time and they couldn't get back into the country. And this is a crazy situation. This, This is a situation where essentially prejudice and bigotry has been codified into law. It doesn't make any rational sense. It's purely pandering to a particular set of prejudices of Trump and his supporters on the campaign trail. Well, let me ask you about a couple more of the people who you you talk to. There's almost half a million Iranian Americans in this country, uh, a lot of them right here in, in Los Angeles. You talk to a guy in San Diego who is a Persian classical musician. Tell us his story. Yeah, so this this was somebody who had fled the Iranian Revolution nearly 40 years ago. And he was a very cultured, very gentle, very generous human being. And he was living in San Diego. And I met him at a school where his kids were learning Farsi on the weekend. And there were a few hundred Iranian parents at that school. And he was in this situation that he could no longer visit his brother, who had stayed in Iran, because he couldn't travel to Iran. And his brother could no longer come to California to visit him. So they were in this crazy situation where they were instead having to go to Turkey to meet up. And he said to me, look, I used to spend my money and my brother used to spend his money on going out and doing things, going out for meals and so on in San Diego. And now we spend all of that money in Turkey. Who does that benefit? (laughs) And, And I think when you put it that way, you know, it really comes home that this travel ban is so capricious and it is so devastating not just personally to individuals, but economically. And at the end of the day, nobody benefits. America certainly doesn't benefit from having hundreds of thousands of people spending their money somewhere else. And you went to Brooklyn where you met a guy from the Yemeni town of Ib, I-B-B. Sounds like the beginning of a a great story. (laughs) Well, it's a a sad story. He's, He's somebody who, again, had left Yemen years ago as a child, was a U.S. citizen, 
had grown up in California, was now living in New York and working in his brother's deli in Park Slope in Brooklyn. And he'd gotten married to a Yemeni woman, and they went through the whole process of beginning to start her visa application so she could join him in the States. And he would go back every few months during that process, and she ends up getting pregnant. And um, they get very, very, very close to her getting the visa, and there's no functioning U.S. consulate or embassy in Yemen, so they go to Djibouti on the Horn of Africa. And she's at this point about eight months pregnant when they call her in for her final interview. Again, everything had cleared. She was all set to be given this visa to be allowed into the States. And again, by sheer misfortune, she was called in just a few days after the Supreme Court allowed the travel ban to go into effect. And she was denied the visa, and she was told there was no appeal possible because of the executive order, and they were given this very sort of bureaucratic, formulaic piece of paper saying that she would not be allowed in. And she went into labor. She, she was totally devastated, and a few days later went into labor, had the baby slightly prematurely. And they waited for months and months and months in Djibouti trying to navigate the bureaucracy, and they managed to get their son his U.S. passport, and they still couldn't get the wife her visa. And eventually, Ismail al-Ghazali, the, the um, young man that we're talking about here, ran through his life savings, and he had no choice. He had to go back to New York. And his wife and his infant son had to go back to Yemen. And I met him in New York, and he said, how does a person live without his wife and his child? Mm. And again, there's, there's nothing sensible about a policy like this. It's just designed to inflict heartbreak and pain. Well, we've been talking about the Muslim ban, the Muslim travel ban, and the heartbreak and pain that it inflicts. I want to also talk about Trump's uh, efforts to repeal a different refugee program called Temporary Protected Status, TPS. It doesn't uh, target Muslims in particular. Tell us about the purpose of the Temporary Protected Status program, why it was created in the first place. So this is a post-Cold War program. It, it, it was created under the first Bush presidency. And it was when there were a lot of people who were fleeing really bad situations, military situations, economic collapse, environmental collapse, in a certain number of countries, some in Central America, plus Haiti, plus Sudan, plus a couple other places. And it was essentially recognizing a messy reality. And the messy reality was there were an awful lot of people who had left and entered the United States either illegally or they'd come in as visitors and then overstayed their visas because they had nowhere to go back home. And the TPS program was designed to in some ways regulate them. So if they had not committed any crimes when they were here, what they would do is they would apply for temporary protected status. It cost just under $500 and it was renewable every 18 months. And they were given a work permit. They were allowed to live here without being in the shadows. They were allowed to get a driver's license and so on. And these programs have been renewed pretty much like clockwork every 18 months, both by Republicans and by Democrats. And Trump came in and he was being advised by people like Stephen Miller and a guy called Robert Law, who used to be from this anti-immigration group called FAIR. And they were being sort of put into senior positions of power in the bureaucracy, and they decided they were going to roll back TPS. So very early in the Trump presidency, you had this series of memos going out essentially saying it doesn't matter what the conditions on the ground are like, find a way to end TPS for El Salvadorans, for Hondurans, for Nicaraguans, for Haitians, for Sudanese, for Nepalese, and so on. And we're not talking about small numbers here. We're talking about half a million people. 
And we're talking about people who've been here working and living in the open for 20 years. And many of them have married in the interim and many of them have U.S. citizen children. And so essentially, Trump went into the business of de facto orphaning hundreds of thousands of children because he said, all right, we're going to roll back the protected status and deport the parents and the kids will be left behind in the United States as U.S. citizens. And to me, there's nothing more immoral than that. This, this is a deliberate family-wrecking policy. And there's been this tremendous court battle, a tremendous grassroots effort by activist groups to um, draw attention to what's happening. Before we get to the, the before we get to the to the uh, to the fight back against this, I I just want to talk for another minute about exactly the toll here. You say there's half a million people who've been staying in the United States, in many cases for decades, from Central America, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, also Haiti, also Sudan, also Nepal. Uh, and how many of them does Trump want to send back? All of them. All, all of them. All it, of them. They, the, the Department of Homeland Security and the other agencies responsible have now recommended terminating it for pretty much every country impacted. And you're talking about El Salvador alone, nearly 200,000 people. You're talking about over 100,000 Hondurans. You're talking about 50,000 Haitians. And they're clustered. They're not all over the country. These are disproportionately in California, in Florida, I believe in Texas, and New York, and a few other states. And so, so, so the essentially what is, you know, if you're a Californian, it's almost certain you know somebody under TPS yeah. because there's so many people here. And you certainly, if you, have some, if you have kids in public school, almost certainly your kids are going to school with children of TPS holders. And those kids stand to lose their parents because of a deliberate government policy. <clears throat> now, I, I know that Trump ran into opposition, first of all, when he proposed this from within the State Department. Tell us briefly about that. Yeah, there were a whole bunch of lawsuits. When they started rolling back TPS, um, the ACLU, the National Temporary Protected Status Alliance, um, and several private law firms filed suit. And in the discovery process, they found a whole bunch of documents that essentially showed that the State Department was recommending one thing, namely the continuation of TPS for countries like El Salvador and Sudan because conditions on the ground were still so dangerous. And then these political appointees like Robert Law who had been moved to the U.S. Um, CIS, were recommending the exact opposite conclusion. So they were looking at all these findings, and all these findings said conditions are dangerous, we should renew TPS. And then they'd write a memo saying, well, that doesn't sit well, because what we really want to do is find a rationale for ending TPS. And so when all of those documents went into discovery, Edward Chen, a judge in California, ended up ruling that they couldn't go ahead and do this, that there was just the process itself had been so corrupted, it clearly stood contrary to the letter of the acts that were responsible for creating TPS. And so he put a hold on it. And so at the moment, like so many other immigration policies under Trump, whether it's asylum seekers or refugee admissions or whatever it might be, it's tied up in the courts. And so there is some kind of reprieve for these men and women and children, because until this is gone through the court system, there will be no deportations. Um, of course, the longer-term solution is Congress needs to pass a bill that legislates protections for TPS holders. And there are a lot of congressmen and a lot of congresswomen working on this at the moment. 
So it's the the ACLU of Southern California that brought the uh, lawsuit that won a temporary injunction blocking the end of the program. That's now being appealed to the Ninth Circuit. But as a result of that, that affects 300,000 immigrants who had lost their TPS uh, protections uh, under Trump's order. Those 300,000 will be able to stay at least for another year. The government, of course, is appealing the decision. They'll probably lose at the Ninth Circuit, we think, and then they'll appeal it to the Supreme Court. So this is going to be going on for a couple of years. And in the meantime, as you say, there's been a focus on Congress. Tell us a little bit about the organizing to press Congress to change the TPS laws. Well, as it became clear that Trump had this program in his sights, um, there was a lot of organization on the ground that started going on, sort of very similar to the organizations that began emerging to protect DACA students when it became clear that DACA was under threat. And so you have these national alliances, you have the National Day Labor Organizing Network, which is also very involved in this. You have many of the trade unions, you have civil rights groups, and they're all coming together and they're putting a tremendous amount of pressure on legislatures, especially in states like California and in Florida and so on, where there's a lot of TPS residents, to actually do something. And last year, there were some bipartisan efforts that are fixed. They didn't go anywhere, but they started floating around these efforts to try and tack TPS protections onto a big overhaul of the immigration system. And then this year, a California congressman called Jimmy Gomez, not this year, sorry, 2018, a California congressman called Jimmy Gomez has begun circulating a letter urging protections for TPS. And I believe that at least 80 congresspeople have signed that at this point. So there is momentum building to provide more durable, longer-term protections. Of course, anything that Congress passes at this point is going to run into a Trump veto because right. it's very hard to see how Trump is going to, in any way, shape, or form, see any political capital for himself by giving protection to this group of people. So I think at the moment, it really is this sort of rearguard defensive action to try and draw out these lawsuits long enough that hopefully they can draw it out post-Trump. And what, just to play devil's advocate here for a minute, what the Trump people say is the temporary protected status was supposed to be temporary. It wasn't supposed to last for a decade or two decades. And what's the response to that? Well, they're not entirely wrong on that, that this is one of those messy programs that had the can kicked down the road time and time and time again. And it was initially created as a temporary system, but it was created as a temporary system in response to systemic crises that weren't about to go away. So with El Salvador or with Haiti, the ostensible rationale for granting TPS might have changed, but nevertheless, conditions on the ground remain diabolical. And so what basically happened was every time um, the program was up for renewal for an individual country every 18 months, by default, the renewal became automatic. And so, yes, Trump's right. It was originally created as a temporary program. But if you create a temporary program and you then let people use it for two decades, like anyone else, they're going to embed themselves in a community. They're not going to view themselves as temporary, and they're not going to behave as temporary. They're going to go to school. They're going to get mortgages. They're going to marry. They're going to set up businesses. They're going to have children. They're going to buy cars. They're going to set up retirement accounts. They're going to do the same things that you, me, and everybody else who can 
does in the United States. And if you then throw them under the bus, you say, all right, we're going to arbitrarily tear up your status because it was originally supposed to be temporary. All you do is you shred the relationships they built up over decades. You break apart communities. You hurt landlords who are renting to these men and women and children. You hurt children who are going to have to make this decision of staying or leaving with their parents. Nobody benefits. Sasha Abramsky, you can read his report on Trump and TPS at thenation.com. Sasha, thank you. It's great to have you back on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much. One last thing. It's time for your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Today's question, why is it 51 below in St. Paul? They say the polar vortex has come to Minnesota this week, and they say it's caused by climate change. Here's how it works. Global warming has been melting the sea ice in the Arctic, which is rapidly diminishing around the North Pole. As the ice retreats during the summer, the sun's heat is absorbed by the dark ocean. That heat is released into the atmosphere during the winter, and the warm winds rising off of the water disrupt the polar vortex, the cold wind around the North Pole, and blow it south across Canada and into Minnesota. On Monday, more than 100 endurance athletes traveled to northern Minnesota for the Arrowhead 135. It's one of the toughest endurance races in the world, a 135-mile race from International Falls to the town of Tower. They race on cross-country skis, fat tire bicycles, or they just run on foot. The winner this year was a guy named Jordan Wakeley from Michigan. He managed to set a new record in the race on a, on a bike. He rode his bike for 11 hours and 43 minutes in 50 below cold. About half of the 146 entrants dropped out in the freezing cold. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of Trump Watch on KPFK. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Jeff Wasserstrom. He talked about Trump and China. We also spoke with Harold Meyerson about politics after the shutdown. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.